We're going to go to the book of Revelation, and we've got a lot to cover, as Brother Rain said tonight, so we're going to go quickly. We're not going to do a whole ton of things, but I do want you to get an intro to chapter 17 in Revelation. Um, if you want to be a Bible nerd, here's a little, sometimes people like, here's a little piece of trivia for you. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you can, you, right there, you're an expert. When you hear someone say revelations, you can be like, <laughs> idiot. All right? So you'll, you'll know. That may be the only thing that you know about the Bible, but now you know that. We're in Revelation chapter 17, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 6. Uh, he's getting ready to describe something that he talked about in chapter 16. Look back at 16. Look at verse 19. 16, 19. It says, The great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So he is, has, he's described that Babylon has come into remembrance before God. 17 and 18, as we get into chapter 17 and 18, are a commentary on that verse. And what you find, I've said this a hundred times, and I'll keep saying it because I need to remember this. When you read Revelation, you're not always reading a chronological narrative of what took place. You will read a little while, and then you'll have a parenthesis. And sometimes that parenthesis is something that uh, is expounding on what's happening. Sometimes it's about what already took place. And in this case, he is expounding in 17 and 18 on 16, 19, chapter 16, verse 19. So it's kind of like this is what's in the package that we didn't realize. What does it look like? Why is God upset with Babylon? What is this thing he's talking about? Well, he tells us in chapter 17 and 18. And he, he, he describes this place as a woman. Great Babylon. Let's read verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. Now, coming after chapter 16, what would you think? What's the characteristic of these vials? Full or empty? They're empty now. Okay. So he's going to talk to us about this. And this is regarding the judgment on Babylon. So he had the seven vials, talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. I wish the Bible was up to date and relevant. We don't do wine and fornication anymore. Amen. There's no prostitutes anymore. We're pretty much clear of all that, aren't we? Man, alive. Verse 3. Okay, so he told him to come hither, and he came. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with golden precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written. And you can mark in your Bible at times, there's not too many times where God uses all caps. But he does here. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. 
And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Okay, this is Mystery Babylon the Great. Now notice, it's not Mystery Babylon, it's Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, that, is, that means that this place, the great Babylon, is referring to this woman. And where did he see her? He saw her in verse 3, in the spirit, in the wilderness. So he is seeing into the spirit world, in the wilderness, and he sees this woman. This is not a woman that was hovering on the earth physically. Look up, what's she doing up there? It was in the spirit. And we'll get into that next time. But for now, let me give you a quick overview of this. Uh, I borrowed this outline. I'm not smart enough to come with all this alliteration. But some of you I know like it. And so I threw it out there. Here it is. You have the judgment of the Babylonish mother. And then the judgment of the Babylonish monster. How about that, huh? Alliteration. You see her universal power. Her unique position. Where is this woman sitting? Does anybody know? Can tell me? We just read it. Sitting on the back of the scarlet colored beast. All right. Uh, her unlimited prosperity, her unholy passions, and her untold persecutions. Now, we're going to take a look at this woman over the next few weeks. And uh, this is a major deal. And I'm going to challenge some of your thinking. I always challenge my thinking, which doesn't say a whole lot. And uh, hopefully we'll take something away and that our view of the scripture will be much more exalted even than it was. This woman in chapter 17 is a very popular woman in the Bible. And she's all through the scripture. And simply speaking, she is a religious system that is not only in the scripture in those days, but is incredibly, incredibly popular today. This system, and there's different manifestations of that system. But uh, before we get into that, I want to lay a foundation just a little bit for you, and we'll apply that to a couple different things and focus at uh, focus on this woman right at the end. Okay, here we go. Every scripture, every verse in in the Bible has at least three applications. And this is important. Some of you already know this. You've already been there and heard this. But for some that haven't, we'll go over it. First of all is the historical application. The historical application. Uh, the scripture is speaking of something that actually took place in history. Okay? So even when it's talking about prophecy, such as John in eighty ninety five, John received that prophecy in history. It literally happened in history. That's the historical application, even though he's talking about something that's still yet to come. The second is the devotional or the practical application. And this is where, you know, some folks like to live. And that is how this passage relates to my life right now. And uh, and that is an important thing. Um, if you're not careful, you might be an egghead and you live in an ivory tower and all you all you think about is um, the theoretical observations of the word of God. Well, question is not how high do you fly, but how straight do you walk when you come down? So the practical application, very important, sometimes called the devotional application. Uh, how will this help you be a better Christian? That's what we would call the devotional or practical. Then there is 
the doctrinal or the prophetic. Now, I hesitate to say doctrinal because uh, everything in Scripture, doctrine means what? Teaching. It's very important to get that down. Some people say, well, I want to, st- I want to focus on the, the great doctrines of the Lord. The problem is the Lord does not say, get ready, I'm getting ready to give you a very important doctrine. You know what he says? He says, have sound doctrine. So every word of God is pure. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for what? For doctrine. So which exact words, which verses is he referring to? All of them. It's not a trick question. But for for some of us, sometimes some folks get confused because I want want a doctrinal message. Any, Any verse that is used in preaching or teaching that is expounding what the text actually says is in that sense a doctrinal message. What does the text say? Now here's the problem. Here's the problem. You see the historical, the devotional, the practical, and the uh, doctrinal? Those things are all important. There's probably even more. I've heard up to five, six applications, and some of them would fit in under these categories. But the point is this. If you, if you geek out about the historical, then all you're thinking about is a dusty old book that records what happened. What about today? What, about, what are you going to do with what the Bible says? So you have to have that part. But then if you're not careful, some Christians stop there and they say, you know, I need, I, I, I beat these books up so much, forgive me. I need the chicken soup for the Christian soul. Because that's where I live. I mean, I'm thankful for prophecy, don't get me wrong, but I need something for me. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And it certainly can help you. But may I remind you, you're one of how many Christians? You're one of how many people on the earth? To whom did God give the Bible? To all y'all. So this book does not belong to me in a special way that it doesn't belong to you. Now, God has a relationship with me. I'm a unique human being. And you are unique human beings. God has a unique relationship with you. But the Bible is not special. Sometimes people will say, I want to show you something that God showed me. Well, may I remind you, the same spirit that showed you that is in me. Now, God uses us, uh, teaches us, and brings us all along in different tempos, right? In different times and stages. So it's understandable to say, God showed me this, but be careful. Be careful. I'm always conscious of that. Because sometimes people think that, that the Bible is like somehow specifically mine in a way that it is not yours. And I will say this. The scripture says the same thing whether you and I were ever born. It's a privilege, like, I'm, I'm sitting, seated, what's the word? Sitting, there you go, on the train, but that seat was there before I ever got on it. And I'm grateful that I get to sit on it as long as I do, but I didn't put that seat there. I, I didn't create that specific place in the Bible. And when you say, well, what does that matter? Well, just as much as there's a danger of thinking of the Bible as a dusty history book, there's a danger in stopping at the devotional practical application. Why? Because it makes me the center of the world, spiritually speaking. I've got to move into the next one, which is the doctrinal or prophetic. And what that does, it lifts me up among the myriad of saints to look down on God's great chronological narrative. It brings me out of my little world, which, by the way, God, God cares about your little world. He said, uh, he will never leave you or forsake you. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But aren't you glad that Jesus is not only suffering with you? He's already won the victory. 
You see what I'm saying? And so if I'm only under the bureau here, this is a tough world in which we live. Did you hear the news tonight? Right? This, hey, listen, that's legitimate. And I make fun of it sometimes. But just to remind you, that's not the only part of being a Christian. There is another part that says, the Lord's like, can we get this thing over with? This is ridiculous. I've already won the victory. I already know what Satan's going to do. I mean, he's ready to roll. And Satan's fighting tooth and nail, and it's all going to turn out the way God says. So that's why the prophetic or the doctrinal, sometimes called application, is so important. I'll give you uh, the example. In Revelation, you've got three levels of application. You've got Revelation 2 and 3, the historical application. What is that? The Lord's writing to seven literal churches in Asia Minor in 95 AD. That's the historical, it's happening, two and three. You can, how do you know that? You read chapter one, and he says, you're going to write these things to the seven churches which are in Asia. Which are in Asia. They were there when John was writing. Okay? But then you have the devotional application. Why? Because we can see some of the characteristics of those churches in churches today. Either churches uh, that, we, a church that we're currently in or churches that we've been in before. And so we say, oh, man, I know Church of Brotherly Love. I've been to church like that. Oh, and I've also been to the Church of Brotherly Shove. And that's, that's another church there in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, Laodicea, this is where that stuff comes from. We can see these different characteristics. And then the doctrinal or the prophetic application is that these seven churches represent a chronological overview of the seven periods of church history. And I won't belabor the point, but uh, I will tell you, if you want to memorize the seven churches, extra Sour, pickles, take, special people to like. There it is. All seven. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and so forth. All right? Now, I want you to look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Revelation 1, verse 10. Let's look at this, what Jesus says, uh, what John says about his interaction with Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 10. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, all my life I grew up and I heard that Sunday is the Lord's day. And it is the day that we worship the Lord. It is the day that Jesus Christ showed himself to his disciples. It is the day that the disciples met. But nowhere in Scripture does the Bible say that the first day of the week is the Lord's day. It's an interesting thought. However, there are many references to the day of the Lord in Scripture. And guess what those are? They're always in the future. The day of the Lord. It encompasses all kinds of things. It starts with the rapture and it ends with the new millennium. It's, a, it's an amazing time frame and encompasses a lot of things. Well, if I had to target the one thing that it seems to focus on, it's the return of Jesus Christ, the second advent, the day of the Lord, when he comes not only to be revealed in, in, in the air as the conquering hero, but also a day of judgment, Armageddon. Mount of Olives, all that kind of stuff. So the day of the Lord encompasses all those things. It encompasses the rapture, the tribulation, the second advent, and even up to the door of the millennium. Okay, so he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Notice, in the Spirit. What happened? Was Paul normally not in the Spirit? Remember, it was Paul, uh, I'm sorry, John. John said he was the one. John's the one that wrote about the new birth and that uh, forth from the belly of the believer shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So he was in the spirit because he was born again. 
new birth, but this was something special. This was beyond just being born again. In other words, he was carried by the Spirit into this realm or vantage point where he could see the day of the Lord. And so he sees uh, the, the tribulation and so forth, and he is told to write. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. He said, write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So Jesus Christ himself told John to write in three tenses, three tenses from the vantage point of the day of the Lord. The things which thou hast seen, that's the church age. Chapters 2 and 3. The present is the things which are. The tribulation culminating in the second habit. Revelation 4 to 19. And then the future, the things which shall be hereafter. The millennium, new heaven, new earth, and so forth. Chapters 20 to 22. Alright, now. This is easily understood if you realize that there's two times in scripture in, in the book of Revelation where heaven opens. There's chapter 4, verse 1, I saw heaven open, and, and there, a trumpet, heard the voice of a trumpet talking to me, saying, come up hither. Interestingly enough, chapters 2 and 3, you have the church, the churches, the church, the churches, over and over and over again. And then when you hit chapter 4, verse 1, church is not used again until the very end of Revelation. So we understand what he's talking about is heaven's open, the trumpet talks, and the church leaves. It's a rapture. All right? Then chapter 19, I saw heaven open, and you see the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, coming down on a white horse. So in chapter 4, heaven opens, and a whole bunch of us go up. Amen? That could be, I don't know, like maybe this weekend. Could be tonight. How cool would that be? <laughs> Gives a new definition to the word cool. Traveling through the entire universe up to the place of God. That's chapter 4. The other one is chapter 19 where heaven opens and a bunch of us come down. Come down following that, you know, there's Jesus on his white horse and the armies of heaven follow him. Okay? So if you take those two sections and you put one here at chapter 4 and you put one over here at chapter 19, how many sections do you have in Revelation? You have three. You have one before chapter 4, you have one between 4 and 19, and you have one 19 to 22. So that's the idea of the things which thou hast seen, the past, that's the church age, because where is, where is John? John's fast-forwarded past the church age to the day of the Lord. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And so what's past? The church is past, right? And what's present? Well, what's present is the day of the Lord. Tribulation. All of that, second advent. And then what's future? Well, that's after the Lord returns and that new heaven, new earth, and the millennium. So it's a very interesting way. And again, Scripture does not tell us there are three sections in Revelation. The past, the present, and the future. Scripture does not tell us John was watching the tribulation. But it does tell us that in so many different ways. And so all we're doing is compiling those things and saying, here is a very good explanation, a scriptural explanation of how Revelation is laid out. And there are all different kinds of things that people say, but uh, frankly, I'm not impressed with many of them because people are trying to figure out the stuff without using the words of the Bible. And if you do that, you're going to be in big trouble. So we try to stay as close as we can. Now, I gave all that as a background because now I want you to see applications 
of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 7. So let's go to Proverbs chapter 7 and let's look at this quickly. We have to roll down here as quick as we can. Uh, historically speaking, Proverbs 7 was, was written by, who can tell me? Solomon, right? The Proverbs of Solomon. That's what it tells us in the very first chapter, first verse, Proverbs of Solomon. So it's Solomon's warning to his son and, by extension, to the nation of Israel, to all the young men in Israel. And it, it warns against being sexually seduced by strange women. Strange women. That's the historical application. But if all you do is apply the historical application, then that kind of leaves a lot of people out, doesn't it? Because if, if you say it applies to, it was written by Solomon to his son, that's all. What about a lot of us that need to be reminded of the dangers of the strange woman? So it does apply. That's why he said all scripture is given by inspiration, profitable doctrine for correction and so forth. So we see here, number one, historically, then secondly, practically or devotionally, it applies to every man who ever lived and warns them of sexual temptation. So that's the practical application. All right. Uh, And he says, verse number one, my son, chapter seven, verse one, my son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee, keep my commandments and live, and my law is the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman. By the way, if you uh, start going towards a strange woman, you want to get away from your sister and your mom and any woman that knows you. Maybe your wife, you start getting away from people that know you. Why? Because you're going towards a foreign environment and you don't want anything familiar to mess up your fantasy. So watch what he does. Verse 5, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. Now I want you to think about stranger. What is the biblical use of stranger? What's a synonym for that word used all through the scripture? Strangers. Foreigner. It's a good word. We don't think of it from that standpoint. We think of a strange woman as being a twisted, dark, you know, uh, sultry temptress. And no, she's different. She doesn't have the same culture that I do. And to a wicked heart, that is alluring. So be careful. He's talking about someone who is a foreigner. Well, what does that mean? It means if you're going to commit adultery, fornication, you're going to leave the culture that you know and you're going to go to a different culture. I'm not talking about races. I'm not talking about nationalities. I'm talking about culture. What's that? It's exciting. It's exciting. Something different, something new. And he's here, he's telling her, no, that is dangerous. The foreigner is dangerous. They're not the same culture as you. They don't believe the same thing about fornication. They don't believe the same thing about right and wrong, about purity. They don't believe that. It's different. Have you ever thought of something different than how you were raised? Or do you ever think for yourself? Occasionally, I I, I try to think for myself, and I get in trouble. Why? I'm not smart enough to make it through this world without getting messed up. I've tried my own way. The devil always does that. He always says, well, can't you think for yourself? Do you believe everything the pastor says? Do you believe everything? And I would just say, do you believe everything that your podcast guy says? 
Everything that she says on TikTok, you believe everything that she says? Everybody getting their information somewhere. I mean, it's not like people are coming up with these brilliant thoughts on their own. Look what he says in verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked through my casement, beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths a young man, void of understanding, passing through the street near a corner. He went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot. How would he even know what a harlot was by how she was dressed? How dare he say that? And subtle of heart. She, by the way... Parenthesis, she is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, now in the streets, and lieth and waited every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me this day, have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently, to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have been looking for you all my life, and I have found you, my soulmate. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with card works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love into the morning. Let us solace ourselves, ourselves with loves. Notice, this is the reason, this is the reason that we're supposed to be binding God's commandments on our fingers and writing on the tables of our hearts. Right? Because when you get into this room, verses 16, 17, 18 it's going to be really hard for you to say no to the strange woman. When you get into her environment, her lair, it's going to be really tough. She's going to have you in her web. The key is you never want to find yourself in that room. That's why you're tying these things on your fingers. Oh, that's right. I'm not going to do that. Look at her excuses. Verse 19, for the goodman is not at home. He has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. will come home at the day appointed. I know everything about him. I know the ins and outs. We can easily get away with this thing. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. Uh, with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. Now, I want you to listen. This is the wisest man that ever lived. He had 300 wives, 700 concubines. He said, I'm trying to learn you something here, dingbat. I have been around the block. I, I, I know about the strange woman. And I'm watching you do the same stupid thing that I did. Trying to help you here. And here's here's what happens. Verse 22. He goeth after her straightway as an ox to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hastes to the stair, knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O you children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths, for she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. So that awesome time that she promised in 16 and 17 is actually just a doorway to hell. You're not going to get out of that room. If you get out of that room, she's going to make your life a living hell. All right? Chambers of death, notice in verse 27, she's going to bring death to what? Your marriage, to your relationships with your kids, to your own uh, sanity. She's going to bring death. And by the way, devotionally, there's not a man in this room that should not take close heed to these verses. We are not the exception. I I want you to say that with me. All gentlemen, say, I am not the exception. Let's say it. I am not the exception. I'm not. Well, you're a pastor. (laughs) Have you been around church much in your life? You know how many pastors have messed up? I am not the exception. There are things that I put in my life to guard against. But my flesh never got saved. 
And by the way, it never will get saved. It gets discarded when Jesus makes a new body for it. And I'm thankful for that. Until then, I'm chained to that bad boy. And so I'm not the exception. By the way, it's the number one rule of not getting into sin. Realize that you are capable of getting into sin. And actually not just capable, like you want to. I want to get into sin. That old nature wants to do what it wants to do. That's why you have to keep under our body. I think about that, I always think about drowning it. I don't know why. It's like evil baptism for the flesh or something. <laughs> Hold it under the water. <laughs> so he, he, he's saying here, don't do this the hard way. Um, if, if you do this, it's too late. But if that's all you ever get out of Proverbs chapter 7, you're going to miss something that takes it beyond just me getting through without committing fornication. It goes even farther. So there is a doctrinal or a prophetic application to the book of Proverbs. Notice, the strange woman is a picture of the false religious system of Satan. And by the way, this application could be a lot more dangerous for you than even the practical devotional application. What does that mean? Because he's talking about hell, he literally means hell. You could go to hell if you get connected with the, the false religious system of Satan. Not just metaphorical hell where I hate my life because my wife now hates me. No, like literal hell with fire. If you get connected with the wrong religious system. So we have here this woman riding on the back of the beast, and it is Satan's false system of religion. It's something that's consistent throughout the scripture. All right? And you know what we do, if we're not careful, we run immediately and we think of one church. Well, notice she's the harlot. Harlots, anything but faithful. That's the one thing they're not. Right? Their consistency is, you know, equal opportunity for everyone. So just think about that as we go into it. Because if we're not careful, you can think, oh, thank God, I'm not in the Catholic Church. But may I remind you, the Catholic Church has been a whole lot of things to a whole lot of people. And it's connected. It's connected. The Bible never uses the term, the word Catholic Church. But it certainly uses mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Plural. So we got to think. We just, I'm just asking you to step back and think. I'm not saying it doesn't involve the Catholic Church. I'm saying we've got to step back and think. Only Bible first, and then we make applications afterwards. Is that fair? Okay. I told you it's going to ruin all your venerated observances. And I, and I don't intend to, because this, this book has ruined mine so many times, it's not fair. But uh, I, I want you to understand, it all is inclusive there, but there's more there than sometimes we think. And we'll talk about that as we go. Look at verse number 7. Here, watch it. Now that you know this, you can go back and you can see the, the spiritual uh, implication, the religious implication. Look at verse 7. Beheld among the simple ones, I discern among the youths, a young man void of understanding. Who gets sucked up into this false spiritual system? Simple people. And simple people are just people who don't want to know. It's not that they couldn't know, they just don't want to know. Look at verse 21. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. You know what that tells you? The false religious system will flatter you. What will it tell you? It will tell you that you are good enough. You've made some mistakes. No one's denying that. 
We're all sinners, right? We've done some wrong things, but you can turn this thing around. You can fix it. If you'll just give a little more, pray a little more, sacrifice a little more, turn over a new leaf or maybe a whole forest, you can make a difference. You can get better. It's just a matter of time before you are back on your feet. The prop, you know, Jesus started a work of grace in your heart, and now you've got to keep up those payments. Right? How, how could God ever give something to you and say, you don't have to earn it? That really is unfair to God. I'm speaking facetiously in case you're not picking up on it. You, you've, you've, got to, you've got to do something. How could, you, how could you spit in God's face by not living right? You can do better. You will do better. In Toledo, I know that. You will do better. Right? Man is intrinsically religious, and he likes to get his flesh involved so he can feel better about himself. Because we, we, we don't like that guilt. And so we, we automatically say, well, I may have done that, but not as bad as that guy or her. For, for sure, I'm not as bad as her. And I'll tell you one other thing. I'll never do it again. Oh, and by the way, I did that. That was not good. I'm not saying that was good. But I did a lot of other good stuff. You know what each one of those things is? I'm the judge of how good I am. That's what it comes down to. And that's why the salvation that Jesus Christ provides is a free gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because that's all man does. You ever get around some super spiritual religious person and you feel like you're not good enough? If you ever get around somebody... And you feel like you're not as good as that person, that is not the Spirit of God that's coming off of them. If you get around somebody and you feel unworthy to be a child of God, that's a spiritual person. Why? Because it, it, that person is reflecting the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Their spirit is humble and they've received his payment for their sin. So if you get around people that even, I'm talking about independent, fundamental, Baptists, and they make you feel like you're not good enough, that is not the Spirit of God on you. I will tell you this, if you get around a Christian who's doing more for God and has a committed, consecrated heart, you may feel badly in your flesh. And you might mistake their spirit for being proudful. But there is a difference. Make sure you look inside. If you're humble and you're saying, God, I want, to do what's more. I want to do what you want me to do. I can serve you. I want to do more for you. And you have a humble heart. Getting around other believers who have a humble heart, you will not feel that spirit of competition. Only by pride come with contention. And so we have to be careful of that. But what's interesting about her is she flatters this guy. You know, the Bible, the true Bible Christianity does not flatter you. Someone said, it flattens you. You think about, think about the, uh, I was talking with Bob before church, uh, even with a lot of the music in, in Christian circles today, quote unquote Christian music, and the emphasis in the church. And the idea is, come here and we will make you feel like a million bucks. And, and listen, can we just all acknowledge that we're sinners that's very important to understand. But we have to be careful that, 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 that we don't try to bend over backwards to help sinners who are far from God feel like they're not far from God. 
sinners who hate God, sinners who have sin uh, and pride and, and violence in their heart to try to say, oh, no, no, you're really, really, really close. You are really close if you repent, humble yourself and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But if you won't, you're not really close to God. You're far away from God. And if we take our church services and our uh, surroundings and, our, and we try to create a vibe in which people who don't know anything about God can come in and feel spiritual and never be confronted with their sin, we're sending them to hell. All the while thinking that because they got a little shot of Jesus on Sunday morning that they're okay. It's a dangerous thing. And this woman, what is she saying to him? She knows he's just a number. But she says he's the best guy she's ever been around. She loves him. She loves uh, everything about him. From his physique, to his voice, to his vibe, to his clothes. He is the best. And she's lying to him. Why? Because she wants to make money off of him. I mean, do we have to get any more explicit than that? Spiritually speaking... This is the woman of Revelation 17. She's lying to people and making them feel better about themselves, all the while preparing to send them to hell. And so we have to be aware of this. Look at verse number 26, what kind of people she attracts. She hath cast down many wounded. You know, a lot of times people start, when, when they go through difficulty in their lives and they have, you know, the bottom drops out. They start getting religious. And this woman takes advantage of those vulnerable people. She swoops in and says, I'm here for you. We love you. We, we want to help you. I'm not discounting the fact that people care. But if people are not pointing you to the words of God, they're not really helping you. They're helping themselves. I'm talking about spiritually speaking. Now, this sounds terrible. It sounds terrible to say, because we do want to take care of people's physical needs. If we can buy them a meal, if we can give them a place to sleep. But I'm just telling you, sometimes people get caught up in that. You want to talk about who put Jesus on the cross. It was not people who denied the Bible. It was people who thought they had more knowledge of the Bible than he did. They were the ones who were proud about their religion. And Jesus came in and challenged them and they put him on a cross. You want, to, you want to talk about, go, go into um, uh, a, a, a mission or a food bank or go, go into a, a place, a charity, we call it charity. Go in there and start talking about the real need that people have of, of having their sins forgiven and their souls saved through the salvation of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about getting people mad? That'll do it. Why? Because they have a card. It's called, I care more than you because I do more than you. And they will play that card. And you'll get them fired up and mad. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of people. I'm just saying this. When Jesus was on the cross and the, and, and the, and the man was crucified next to him, what did he say? Lord, remember me. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Meet me at the mission. I'll give you a hot, hot, hot meal. I'll give you a place to sleep. We'll take care of you. We'll get you a job. Get you back on your feet. What's wrong with any of those things? Nothing. But it doesn't get you to heaven. Right? Am I too far out or am I being mean? What, I, don't, I can't, nobody's saying anything. Right? We've got to be careful because we do want to care for people. But you can be fat, happy, healthy, nice house, and go to hell. 
<laughs> it's like, what are we doing? That's, I don't think anybody wants to go to hell from the nicest house in the neighborhood. So that's why we have to be careful what our actual motive is. This woman makes you feel like a million bucks. Go get them, big guy. You're the best. She's lying to you. And she's doing that because she wants to make money off of you. Okay, we need to stop this because this is obviously not a good message tonight. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to go to um, one more verse tonight and we'll close. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Paul said, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused to you one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Chaste virgin. But I, I fear, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The whole Christian life is about Jesus Christ. Okay, now look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Well, thanks a lot, God, for making me feel so great. I, I would rather hang out with a strange woman who flatters me with her words. The Lord is teaching us to deny ourselves, our ungodliness and our worldly lusts. Well, I just feel like sometimes the church is so hard on people. Well, okay, I'm sorry. We'll try to be less biblical. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I know it sounds sarcastic. I'm just saying, did you read what, what that said? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. The Lord's not so interested in you being the cool Christian on the block. He wants you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Well, what are those? I only know of three lusts. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he said, I want you to deny those. Deny them. Well, I'm kind of looking for a place where I can be like a Christian, but like a super secret one. There is no such thing. Not when Jesus died naked in a public place. You have to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Well, I don't think it's fair. Who gets to make the rules on that? The Holy Spirit inside of you is to read the Word. Specifically, specifically, if you're at home and you're a wife, a woman, your wife, uh, your husband, your husband gets to make the call. That's <laughs> so great. I love it. Oh, man, sometimes I think I'm hired just so you guys can listen to me say weird, crazy things. <laughs> it's like, who even believes that? I do. I do. How do I know this? You're going to get yanked out of this world to a completely different universe. What they sell online, what they're talking about on social media does not matter up there. Okay, but supposedly we, be, we believe that, but just don't make me believe it. Like, live like I believe it. Now, I'm, it's supposed to be, like, easy and nice tonight. We're supposed to have a finance meeting. We're going to be biting and devouring one another in the finance meeting. But, but, but the reason why, it's, it's because this super sweet, sticky, strange woman is everywhere in this country. It's everywhere. You, you tell me the last time you listened to a song... Contemporary Christian music song that talked to you about how wicked the flesh is. And about how Jesus Christ had to die for my wickedness. And if they do say it, it's all encompassed in a 
ocean of different sounds and layers that make you feel good about how bad you are. It's weird, man. It's weird. It's weird. And, and I think it's part of this mother of heartlets. I really do. And so he says, denying ungodliness, what should we do? Here's what we should do. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what did he do for me who gave himself for us? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, that does not mean weird, it means special, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He said, I've, I've espoused you to me. I expect you to act like my fiance because you're going to be my bride. I expect you to keep yourself only for me. I expect you to watch how you live in this world. It does matter to me because I am your future husband. That's what the Lord's saying. We've got to be careful, Christians, that we don't start flirting with the strange woman. And what is that strange woman? It is that woman that makes you feel good about yourself. Makes you feel good about your needs and your wants and your lusts and your plans for your life. We're supposed to deny ourselves. We're supposed to deny ungodliness. We're supposed to say, Lord, I'm getting ready to see you. I want to live my life today as if we're going to have our wedding tomorrow. And if you'll do that, if you'll do that, you don't have to have your father in heaven watching from the window as you go down and get your liver struck through with a dart. There's a lot of Christians who walk away from the Lord, and I might be one of them someday. Always have to keep that in my mind. A lot of Christians walk away from the Lord, get hooked up with something that makes them feel awesome. Finally, I'm feeling good. But they're walking away from Jesus. And if, they'll be, if, if, we're, if we'll take this caution, it'll help us both physically, sexually, keep us pure, but even more important than that, spiritually. All right, now let's look at our prayer list tonight.